and now fine Presbyterians who do everything decently in order, I'm going to ask you for a little grace because it's 1148 and we're not going to be quite out at noon. (laughs) But we will move carefully and methodically together through this scripture. Amy and I are currently in a season of life that it's a bit frenetic. As you saw, we have four children under four years old, and though we have the benefit of of a lot of help from family and friends, um, little children are up early. And, and the day sort of winds up and can feel like a sprint to the finish line, which for us right now is that 7.30 bedtime for them. <laughs> I told Amy last week that, that right now there are, are two times of day that I look forward to because I can depend on them. The first is I can depend on being able to wake up right now and, and go running early in the morning, and the second is the time after we put the kiddos down and we have some time together, typically sitting on the couch, maybe eating some dinner and watching a little bit of television. It's pretty magical. (laughs) But we're in the midst of watching this this really long show and and it's about 177 episodes and and I, um, I, we're not not all at once. (laughs) Uh, I'm a, I like to get every detail of the story, and so anytime one of us has to get up to go to the restroom or, or get a drink or <clears throat> I just think we missed something, I pause it, I rewind, and I want to make sure we catch every little detail. And it's one of the reasons that, that was really important for us to read all 41 verses of this scripture today. And so I'm going to pick up right where Patrick left off in verse uh, 24. I invite you to follow along in the Bibles that you brought with you from home or in your Pew Bibles, as we continue to hear what has happened after this man was cured of his blindness. At 24, we read, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. The man answered, I don't know whether he is a sinner, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. Well, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me that I may believe in him. Well, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I believe that our scripture this morning reveals three things to us. The first is that dogmatic belief is the beginning of the loss of faith. Second, that that ideological certitude contributes to the fracturing of community. And third, that we are invited not to be frightened by, but rather to enjoy the mystery of God. In our story this morning, Jesus finds a man who's been blind since birth. He heals him, and and the story follows the subsequent fallout. As this man's neighbors and the religious leaders referred to some places as Pharisees, others as Jews, they grapple with the meaning of this healing and this Jesus who has performed it. There's an exchange at the very beginning in the scripture that Patrick read for us at the outset that sets the stage for the healing, and it, and it hints at why exactly the other people in the story will struggle to embrace what has happened as good news. The disciples ask Jesus a question, a question whose answer has a profound impact on the way that, that they view the entire world around them. What is it that the disciples ask Jesus before the healing? They see the man who is blind and they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. What is it that they're really asking? What is it that they want to know? They want to know, why has this happened? Why, why is this man suffering? You know, we, we understand that, that God is good, so, so there must be a good reason, and it, it can't be God's fault, so it must be someone's fault, and well, there must be a reason, there must be a why, so, so was it the man's fault? Was it the man's sin? Or was it his parents? Retributive theology is a commonly held worldview by Jewish people of the day, and it's, it's a commonly held worldview by, I would guess, many of us in this room. It's the idea that we get what we deserve, we reap what we sow. They believed that if a person lived a morally upright life, then they would be rewarded. And if a person were to lead a life that was self-centered, selfish, and evil, then that would bring about punishment of some kind, like blindness. And so it is through the lens of this framework that the people of the day view the events of their lives, their, their fortunes and misfortunes. It is this framework that prevents the religious leaders from seeing how God is at work in our story. Friends, how is your framework, your understanding of of who God is and the way the world works preventing you from seeing how God is at work in your midst all the time? The religious leaders here spend the story trying to make sense of what's happened. They, 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 
They spend time trying to make it fit their framework. Richard Rohr writes about this kind of religiosity and, and critiques religious leaders specifically, saying they need to speak with absolutes and certainties. They feel their job is to make absolute truth claims and feel very fragile when they cannot. And then we followers think that we must be certain about things that we're really not certain of at all, which is the beginning of the loss of faith. Because when the world operates in ways that don't agree with our religious framework, we often end up throwing out God instead of the framework. You see, the more we try and hold on tightly and dogmatically to the framework, the more fearful and nervous our posture becomes. We become defensive and judgmental until we either drive everyone away or we let go of it all together. It's only on relaxing our grip Relaxing our grip on what we know doctrinally and focusing our gaze further out in an effort to simply follow Jesus, that we will find ourselves operating out of places of unconfidence, excuse me, of confidence instead of unease, out of places of love instead of fear. We're not called to have it all figured out, and, and when we hold on to the truth loosely, it leaves room for us to discern how God is at work continually. Now, approaching our faith with this certain humble open-handedness opens ourselves up to seeing the mystery of God at work. But not only does, does dogmatic belief or, or ideological certitude tear down faith, it also contributes to the fracturing of community. Here in the story, the, the man's ultimately kicked out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. This man who's been cured of blindness forgiving an answer that doesn't fit into their framework of understanding. It's not difficult to see how ideological certitude fractures community. Depending on what source you use, there are an estimated 40 to 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. The overwhelming majority of these represent a differing of opinion on some uncompromisable theological point. The fracturing of community not only decreases the numbers within a community, but it has a devastating impact on diversity of thought. Friends, we are a weaker community when we marginalize any voice, regardless of whether we agree, regardless of whether it's painful to hear. You know, over the past decade, within our own denomination, the PCUSA, as changes to the Book of Order were made with regards to same-sex relationships, Scores of churches left the denomination. The exodus has meant the loss of, and forgive the label, but a conservative point of view in the greater conversation of our denomination about who God is and who God has created us to be. And, and for some, it may feel like there are short-term victories, but no one wins in the long term when these voices are lost. We have got to learn how to talk about hard things amicably. And this is not just true in the church, I'm sure you are thinking. 
It's true in the secular world as well. Former Senator Ben Sass from the state of Nebraska was recently hired as a president of the University of Florida. And, and he said this in a very recent interview about the current political dynamic. He was talking about his, his time serving on the Senate in, Intelligence uh, Committee. He said it's, it's one of the only functioning committees in Congress. Mostly it's because we meet in a bunker and there aren't any cameras present. So there's no reward for people being, he inserts a farm animal here, I'll say immature. <laughs> he says it's kind of a cautionary tale about how little of the institution functions well in the places where cameras are ever present. Because people are preening like they're 14-year-olds desperate for attention. And given the ever-increasing polarization of the political climate, ideological certitude means that nobody is listened to. It prevents us from having authentic dialogue. It prevents us from being in the same room to be able to consider and talk about incredibly nuanced topics like gun policy, immigration, or abortion rights. These issues that don't have a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. And it feels as though people are moving further and further to the extremes and that there is no longer some middle way, a space where we can bring everyone to the table. Actor-turned-author Matthew McConaughey hits on this need for a new kind of centrism, a move, as he calls it, to the middle of the road. He talks about it in his 2020 book, Green Lights, and in an interview about the book, responding to a critic who, critic who told him that the only thing in the middle of the road were yellow lines and dead armadillos, <laughs> in a way that only the Texan McConaughey can, says, and I'll spare you the impression, I'm walking down the yellow line right now and the armadillos are running free and having a great time. Do you know why? Because the two sides, the two vehicles on either side of the political aisle are so far apart, their tires aren't even on the pavement anymore. Ideological certitude pushes us to the extremes, but loosening our grip means a move to the middle, a space where dialogue can take place. We need to, as, as Sass puts it, create spaces where we respect each other so much and we believe so deeply in human dignity that we want to understand people who have different perspectives than we do. I recently came across a church website that read, the church should be a people of loyal opposition. I love this phrase. Listen to the way that they define it. The church should be a people of loyal opposition, a place where not everyone looks the same or agrees, but it is nevertheless a place where trust is built across the very barriers that often keep us separated. It's a place where we say, before I disagree, I should be able to say, I truly understand. Friends, as we learn to hold on loosely, as we create these kinds of spaces, it allows us to learn to enjoy rather than be fearful of the mystery of God. 
It helps us learn to say, I believe even when God is silent. Let's look at an example from today's text. In verse 16, we read, some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, he, he can't be from God because he doesn't observe the Sabbath. But, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And, and they were divided. Again, the Pharisees, in order to make the events of this world fit their religious framework, they've got to find a way to make sense of it. And in doing so, they're bickering instead of celebrating that a man who was blind now sees. And the man tries to tell them this later in the second interaction that the man has with these religious leaders. We read, so for the second time they called the man who'd been blind and they asked him about the healing and more importantly, the healer and his sin. And how does he answer? He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I He says, I don't know what you're looking for or what you're trying to explain, but here's the deal. I was blind and now I see. See what God has done. Friends, are we missing what God is doing all of around us all the time? How God is at work in us, among us, through us, and in spite of us. Today's a miracle. There's a miracle going on right now in our midst. It is a beautiful day out there. You are all presumably off of work. I know remote working is a thing, but I don't believe that's going on right now. You are free of commitments. Social obligation no longer says that you need to be in church on Sundays, and yet you're here. You are here in order to experience some interaction, some encounter with the holy. We looked on today as, as God's people, as we poured water on two baby boys, believing in varying degrees, I am sure that the Spirit of God washes over them in some mysterious way, binding us together. The mystery of God is at work. The mystery of God. I love those two times of day that I can depend on. But it is rarely where I experience the mystery of God. Friends, this magic, this mystery. This experience of God at work so much more often happens in between somewhere. It happens down in the muck when we least expect it during the hard times. It happens during that sprint to the 7.30 bedtime in the midst of trying to bathe and feed and get children into pajamas when a kid spontaneously looks up and says, I love you forever, Daddy. It happens in the middle of our work days while we work through a carefully curated list of to-dos trying to get the things done we believe need to get done and we find ourselves in an unexpected interaction with a coworker 
that opens into a vulnerable interaction where we find ourselves sharing with one another how God is at work in our families and in us. It happens at the end of a long week when all we can do is collapse into the arms of a loved one. It happens when we are alone. When the weight of our problems seem to be bearing down on us and our attention is moved by a gentle breeze that forces our eyes up and opens us up to the world around us. Friends, it is in these moments when our eyes are opened to the mystery of God at work and when we are gifted glimpses of the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.